For 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. Welcome back to Fraudsters, everyone. I'm Cena Gazzetti. Justin Williams is here. I'm at Cena now, at Justin Williams Comedy on social media. Actually, Justin's just on Instagram, but let's all give a round of applause for the fact that he is on Instagram. Justin, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm happy. I, I found out what Instagram is. I'm going to start making some reels now. <laughs> you got That's like TikTok, dude. You didn't want to do TikTok. You got to do the dancing thing on reels. It's a dancing platform. Yeah, I'm going to start lip syncing, and I think I'm going to have one where I look at the camera, and then I pull away in a new sports car. <laughs> well, if you want to text us, or <laughs> you could slide into his DMs, but I think you should text us at 412-285-1255 uh, to hit us up on our community text line. That's what we'll let you know about, it. like happy hours and stuff. As always, send in your requests, or if you're a victim of a fraud that's happening right now, or it happened, hit us up on the email, fraudsterslpn at gmail.com, and guess what? What, Justin, I made a Discord. I made a Discord server. Oh, what? I don't know. This is what my students yes. like cheat on. That's what I that's what I know. Is that Discord? Is what it, is it? What is it? You, yeah, exactly. They use it. Wait, they use it to cheat on or your exams. Other people's and stuff? exams and stuff. Yeah, they put the exams on the Discord and then we find it. And I think if people don't know, you're on like the like uh ethics committee or whatever, like the the uh, honest test taking committee. What do they call it? Yes, I am I am a very respected man at my university. <laughs> So Justin knows all the different ways kids are cheating today. So uh, join us on our Discord. I think I'll post a a link uh, about it, but super excited about that. You know, today, speaking of cheating, that's what our whole show is about, but we wanted to cover, and we were going to do this last season, but we were just chock full of too much good content. We wanted to do an episode on Charles Ponzi. So Justin, we're going to go way back to the proto-fraudster, the king of kings of fraudsters, the Italian immigrant scam lord and savior, Charles Ponzi. Wall Street fraud who masterminded the largest Ponzi scheme in history is going to spend the rest of his life behind bars. Authorities believed Lou Perlman had engineered a massive Ponzi scheme. A classic Ponzi scheme. Madoff used new investors' money to pay back the old ones. He was sentenced to 50 years in prison for being the mastermind behind the largest Ponzi scheme in Minnesota history. Ah, buongiorno, everybody. <laughs> it's he, me, Sina. And Justino, <laughs> here from Fraudsters LPN. <laughs> so offensive. I'm so sorry. I think this music played at my wedding. <laughs> I went to see this wedding and I asked him for a favor. He never even came over for a cup of coffee or even offered friendship. <laughs> Today, on the day of my co-host's wedding, <laughs> you asked me this favor. I'm smart. I can do things. Not like people say. <laughs> I was passed Justin. over. <laughs> I should have been the boss. <laughs> Carlo Pietro Giovanna Guglielma Tabaldo Ponzi was born on March 3rd, 1882 in Italy. Not surprisingly, we can't be sure exactly where he was born, but we believe it was the southern part of Italy. But he told the Times he was born in Parma. There are other reports that he was born in Italy but raised in Montreal. Some say that he was born and raised in Lugo, uh, uh, which is uh, uh, Emilia Romana. 
in that part of Italy. And I apologize to all of the Italians for my pronunciation. <laughs> we, yes, we apologize to all of our listeners in Palermo. Oh, yeah. You know, because uh, I, I, you know, I do a lot of shows in New Jersey and I tell the people that my father was from P- Palermo. And what do they say? Uh, the stunned silence. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Justin, though, he, I don't know if he was, he wasn't from Parma, I guess. I don't know. He was from someplace. But he did go to the University of Rome, La Sapienza, home of the fighting Paisanos. That is not real. It is, uh, it's actually a research university. They don't have a mascot. But what, what should, what should their mascot be? I don't know. You know, it's a very old uh, civilization. Uh, sort of Italian civilization. So it could be anything from, you know, like a Roman centurion. That could be one thing. Yeah, the ce- a Roman senator. Oh, there we go. The senators. I feel like anything I say a, will offend. A winemaker. I feel like anything I will say will offend Italians somehow, the Italian listeners, as if I haven't already, but alas. No, no. It, you know, I, I, I will say out of all the comedy audiences, uh, the comedy, uh, you know, that I find in the Northeast, I don't get a lot of uh, letters to cancel people for things they've said from our Italian American listeners. <laughs> you know, you're, I love that too because when I lived in Brooklyn, I went to the local coffee shop there, and I went to go get a coffee, and I like to make pizza from scratch. I make my own dough. I got a little pizza stone. I put it in the oven and stuff like that. And one time, I'm getting the coffee, one of those you know fancy little Brooklyn coffee shops, and the barista is like, "So, what are you doing this weekend?" And I say. Ah, uh, yeah, you know, I'm actually going to make some pizza for my friends. I'm going to make a, a pepperoni pizza with a mozzarella, maybe a margarita pizza afterwards. And she goes, you know, you you really shouldn't do impressions of other races. And I was <laughs> like, uh, the, the, the Italians? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, are you Italian? She goes, yeah. Yeah. I was like, well, what, what part? I mean, I got married in Italy. I love Italy. She goes, well, my dad's from Italy. I was like, oh, what, what part of Italy? She goes, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. He's very proud of is it. Is it hard to trace back your Italian heritage? Is it difficult? Is that a problem? <laughs> I didn't realize the Italians were going through that type type of uh, type of issues there, type of difficulty. I believe the Sopranos litigated this, uh, the issue between <laughs> the tension between stereotypes and storytelling. So, Justin, uh, Ponzi actually dropped out of the University of Rome, and what we initially thought was that he was partying too hard and spending too much money. But what we're going to find out is that wasn't necessarily the case. You know, either way, he uh, left the University of Rome and he made his way over to North America as part of the Great Migration, traveling on the SS Vancouver in 1903. He was one of two million Italians with the same idea to leave behind war or poverty or both and head to the U.S. and North America uh, between 1900 and 1910. But, Justin, to expand on this, we have our resident Italian expert, from the Italian American podcast, everybody's favorite, Pat O'Boyle, to help us illustrate and paint a more beautiful picture of what Charles Ponzi actually is to the Italian people and who he was as a guy back then. Uh, full disclosure, uh, Pat, despite his last name, is Italian. Okay, let's hear that interview. The, well, tell me about the Italian migration to America here. You can't put the, Ponzi in that category. Okay, tell me why. Because Ponzi came from money. Oh, well, you couldn't. You, 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 yes, you can and you can't. There is a handful of Italians that are in America before the Civil War. Most of them are from the area around Genoa. They're coming to make money. Everybody came to make money. The but great port city of Genoa. I know that. Great port city of Genoa. In the area of Liguria, they're really the first Italian entrepreneurial people that come to the United States. When that first wave in the 1870s and 1880s starts, the, the vast, vast majority of Northern Italians go to Argentina. A handful go to um, North America, specifically areas like New York and Philadelphia. What happens is in 1860, the so-called unification of Italy happens. So prior to 1860, you have a number of states in the north of Italy. Central Italy, where Rome is, is controlled by the Pope, the Papal States. And the south of Italy is... Um, the kingdom of the two Sicilies. And that's a, a kingdom that's about a thousand years old. They're all ancient kingdoms. Same thing with the, with the papal states. States that kind of evolved after um, the fall of the real Holy Roman Empire, 800s and time around Charlemagne. So what happens is in the process, 
to unify Italy, quote unquote, unify Italy. The economy of the south of Italy, the two Sicilies, is destroyed. So they go from being a very healthy economy that had practically no emigration to an economy that's devastated and that has tons of emigration. Mm. Now, the first um, the first people who come to America in this time period, I'd say the 1870s, most of them felt um, think about coronavirus in okay. America. Right. This is the time we're in now. Everything is wacky. There's political upheaval, there's social economic upheaval, but everything's going to get back to normal. We just sit tight and just, just hold, you know, hold things together. They'll get back to normal. That's the feeling in Italy at this time. Mm. So the feeling is the country's been um, devastated. The, the South has been politically overturned by quote unquote unification by Garibaldi. Um, no one really knows what's going to happen next. No one knows where things are going. People keep telling them that they're going to build back better. Things are going to be actually better after all this turmoil calms down than it is now. And it was before. And you just got to sit tight. The problem is everybody keeps waiting. And not only do things not get better, they don't even go back to where they are. So some people start to make a decision. We're running low on family cash. I'm going to go to America because America becomes synonymous with a place to make money. I'm going to make some money bring some money home. We could pay off some debts or maybe buy a piece of land or just live off of it until the, the boom we've been promised is going to happen. Yeah. So in the 1870s, in the period immediately following the American Civil War, Italians begin to come to the United States basically as migrant workers, like seasonal workers. Some stayed for half the year, some would stay for a year or so. They'd make some money, go home, live off of it and wait for the, the um the upswing in the economy that was promised in unification. After a while, going back and forth, you know, you're on sailboats at the time, the, the big uh, sailing ships, you're spending a lot of time and a lot of money going back and forth. People start to realize things are not going to get better, at least for the foreseeable future. So they stop being my, they stop the migratory pattern of coming and going mm. and they just stay. Now, for the ones who came here, we have, you know, the gangs of New York type portrayal. Yeah. Manhattan, we'll just take Manhattan was a very hor- horrible place to live, right? The Five Points, which was an Irish neighborhood that becomes Little Italy. Um, they had a 50% infant mortality rate yeah. in the 1870s. Wow. But they're also sending money back to Italy. So even though you're working a 12-hour days and there's rats in the street and there's cholera down the block, money's getting back to Italy. So the, the idea in Italy is, and some people come back with money. Some people come back and say they do their five or six years in America. They come back. They buy a piece of land. They buy some livestock. They start to live well. There is a um, a promised land feeling of America that comes back to Italy. Part of the po- part of the positive propaganda is that if you leave your parents and you're never going to see them again, but you you just can't feed everybody. You have to take the hit. You have to be the sibling that leaves for America, and you know your parents are devastated and your family's devastated. Are you going to write them a letter and say life is so hard? That explains. Yeah. So when you, so when you send so you send back your letter. Oh, gee, mm-hmm. mom, you know, there was a, a great film that came out. It was a, called The Golden Door. And it was about um, I mean, so, so, I mean, yeah. you have to understand the poverty in Italy at this time. I mean, there's people who, there's there's people who don't eat every day. Right. We eat one day and we don't eat the next day because we don't have enough of food. Right. So, you know, in The Golden Door, they're sending postcards back to Italy with photographs of onions. Mm. Right. These were kind of, I guess, comical postcards, but photographs of onions the size of men. <laughs> And people are looking at this like, wow, even even in America, even the onions are huge. Yeah. So to get to Ponzi, there's a there's a feeling in Italy of um, if you want to make money, if, if you want to make it big, if you want to make it big, America is the place to make it big. Now, in the case of Ponzi, the interesting thing about Ponzi is when, when America created the hagiography of of emigration, right, you know, the, the hagiography that matches the Statue of Liberty. Our hagiography is there's a poor peasant farmer and his poor peasant wife, and they they sell the, the cow and they get the ticket to go to America. And she puts on her shawl and he puts on his derby yeah. and they make the journey and they come here and they come here and they make some money. That, that, that That's 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 the hallmark version of, of things. But there was also um, a lot of Italian well-to-do families, noble families who had. um who were ca- who were title rich and cash poor. Ah, I see. That explains a lot. 
Yeah, title rich and cash poor sounds like almost like the Anna Delvey situation, right? Uh, even though her title is fake, uh, and but she's cash poor, but she gets access to the sort of new New York elite, right? That's such a good point because that is the the being tapped into the Upper West Side of Manhattan is kind of the nobility. And who cares if you have money? You're at the clubs. You're getting in. Ladies get in free after ten, you know, or whatever. It's like. They get into the club, you're there, you throw a couple bucks around, you're fine. And that's probably what he was doing at University of Sapienza. And he was just throwing a couple bucks around here, a couple bucks around there. He's got the title, he's got the air. I think the other thing is like, can you like talk the talk? Can you speak like you're from uh, a higher class? If you can, then all of a sudden people just kind of assume you are of means and have wealth. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, you may not be a Medici, but you could be Medici adjacent. Uh, in a way that, uh, you know, you may not be the, you know, the star of Entourage, but it's good to be a turtle. Yeah. Turtle. Very Tur- good at video games. Turtles too. at all the parties. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Pat O'Boyle. Always great to have you. Check out the Italian American podcast. Uh, love those guys over there. Always helpful to uh, to get some of our Italian American info uh, from them. So, Justin... Ponzi comes over to America. He arrives in Boston with only $2.50 in his pocket, which is like $10 million, I guess. Adjusted uh, for inflation. I don't know. Adjusted <laughs> for inflation. I'm not really exactly sure, but let's just say it's not that much, right? It's worth noting, though, that he, he would have had more money in his pocket if he didn't gamble it away during the voyage. This man was unstoppable. <laughs> He's just doing dice games on the deck of the Titanic. Oh, my God. 7-Eleven doubles on the, on, the, on, the, on the SS Vancouver. <laughs> so he ended up spending the next few years moving around and doing menial jobs like waiting and bussing tables in New York City and, and painting signs in Florida, Justin. Sign painting is truly a lost art. We don't have any sign painters and anymore. Ponzi is actually a pioneer because he was actually the first Italian from New York City to move to Florida when things got a little bit financially tough. <laughs> he was the first snowbird. So sign painting was not meant to be for Ponzi. And he left that trade to travel north to Montreal and do something that required uh, a very similar skill set, and that was banking. <laughs> I like a, I like the, like how like you didn't have to like have an ID or stuff back then. Like it's like, do you have any papers? No. Do you have any credit? No. Do you have any collateral? No. All right, you can work at this bank. <laughs> Are you even a Canadian citizen? <laughs> no. You know, Justin, Pat O'Boyle actually had a theory about why Italians might have gravitated towards the banking center. It's uh, interesting, and I think we should hear it. Let's, let's go to Pat real quick. You have to say something else. Italians were stunned about the amount of credibility that Americans gave to institutions like banks. Oh. Because Italy is a country that works on a lack of trust. So the idea is, are you going to tell me I'm going to give you a gold coin, which I know is gold because I can bite it. And you're going to give me a piece of paper that says I can redeem this for one gold coin. Yeah. I I, I can bite the coin. I don't know if that's a real piece of paper, a legitimate piece of paper. So I'm not going to go into a bank and put my money into a bank. And I have to work on the the assurances that if a fire hits that bank and the books burn, you're not going to deny me my money. But the safest place to keep my money is under my mattress. Because I know everything that goes on, I keep it on my mattress now. So when the Italians came in and saw Americans had credibility in institutions, ah. they they saw opportunities, some of them, a small minority. Again, our criminals were just as, we had no, it wasn't that we had a greater number of criminals. We had criminals with more style and creativity. That's why there's movies made about our criminals, right? They're not <laughs> watching Polish criminal movies or Slovakian, right? Or Alsatian, Lorrainians, or Spanish, because... We kind of had possessed. So they saw these institutions and they saw the credibility, the, the, the credulousness of Americans. Yeah. So if you're an Italian and you're looking for someone, it's much easier to swindle an American than your own. Country. Absolutely. Because an Italian is never going to trust you. Yeah. They, they saw in America an opportunity to make big bucks because the Americans um, 
I don't want to say gullible. Well, I think that's what we're, maybe we're that's we the, are yeah, saying. Correct. Yeah, I think we're saying gullible. Correct. I think correct. we're saying gullible. Because I think to your point with the pizzazz and the air of nobility that he brought, that that status is what makes people fall for a fraudster. Justin, our resident expert, Pat O'Boyle on Italians, really just laid it out there that the criminals, the, the creme de la creme of criminals, are the Italians. That's who we mean. They're the, the cultural icons of crime are Italians because they have pizzazz, because they have style, because they have the grace. Do you agree uh, with that? <laughs> <laughs> you know what, Cena? I've learned to appreciate criminals from all different ethnicities on this show. Uh, I think that the black criminals are just as stylish as the Italian criminals, uh, except those Irish criminals. Boy, those Irish criminals are very poorly dressed. Not a lot of great Irish criminals. (laughs) But I will say uh, (laughs) Jewish gangsters look great. (laughs) All right, all right. So that was nice. But let's get back to Ponzi. I mean, he started working as a teller at this place called Banco Zarossi in 1907. And at the time, though, the owner, Luigi Zarossi, man, if if any Luigi's out there, fraudstersLPN at Gmail. Hit us up. I mean, man, I want to hear your story. So Luigi Zorossi was the owner of this bank, and get this, he was offering 6% interest on bank deposits, which was double the current interest rate at the time, which is kind of insane. So you put in money, and you get 6% back, right? Okay, let me break this down. So Justin, If you were to put $200 into a savings account at Luigi's bank and let it sit for a year without without touching it, he'd be able to withdraw $212 at the end of that year. Why we use $200 instead of $100 for this example, I'll never fucking know because it would be a lot easier for people to understand 6% if we just used $100. Hazel. Whoops. Nowadays, that APY, that annual percentage yield, right, how much you would make on your money per year, is closer to about 0.06, right? So it's 0.06, people. So, Justin, in today's dollars, if you put in 200, then you would be able to take out 12 cents instead of $12 after a year from your initial investment. Justin, is this what people mean when they say make America great again? Uh, not in Montreal, Canada. In Montreal, they say vendre la Canada en meilleur. Oh my God, canceled in Montreal. That's us. Welcome. FraudstersLPN at gmail.com. Send us your hate mail. Uh, but Ponzi managed to work his way up, actually, at Banco Zarossi to bank manager, breaking through the Italian ice ceiling, you might say. But when he got through, he really. <laughs> I could. <laughs> I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. Oh, God. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a, we are it's going a to get letters. It's a Italian ice. <laughs> so, uh, but when he got through and he like got to be bank manager, he actually saw what was happening at the bank, Justin. The bank was actually in a lot of trouble. So, Real estate loans that the bank was giving, right? We've talked about this last season. Banks give out loans. That's how that's what they do with your money. The real estate loans they were giving to people so they could buy houses, they were failing, meaning people weren't paying back those loans. And Zorosi had was still giving out those bad loans. He was still giving out loans to people that probably shouldn't have had them because he needed money to come in, which means if the money's not getting paid back then you can't pay people that 6% interest all the time because you don't have money coming in. So your money is only going to grow if the bank can lend and generate interest on those loans. But if the loans fail, it's got no money. So what are you going to do to pay off that 6% interest? Wait, I think I could take this one. Who are new customers? Ding, 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 ding. That's right. Enticed by the 6% interest rate, which again is insane. 
If you had a bank that was like, we'll give you 6% on your money, that is insane. That's fantastic. So people are happily giving their money to Banco Zarossi. And Zarossi would use that new influx of money to pay the interest on Justin's deposit from last year, which he obviously now wants to withdraw his $12, right? So, Justin, people called this robbing from Peter to pay Paul. So if you gave Zarossi your money, Justin, you, the senior customer, would be Paul, and the new customer would be Peter. Robbing from Peter to pay Paul. For 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Your skin refuses to be defined by age. That's why Agency creates personalized anti-aging formulas that smooth fine lines, lighten dark spots, and improve the appearance of dark circles. Each formula is tailored to you and prescribed by a licensed dermatology provider. Formulas are customized with clinically proven ingredients like tretinoin, which is up to 20 times stronger than retinol. Get your first month free at withagency.com. That's W-I-T-H-A-G-E-N-C-Y.com. $4.95 shipping and handling subject to consultation. Subscription required. Cancel anytime. Save big money on protecting your garden. Now at Menards. Messina's Animal Stopper is a liquid repellent that prevents pesky animals from damaging your garden. Available in a convenient, ready-to-use bottle. It lasts for up to 30 days, regardless of weather and watering. Save big money on Messina's Animal Stopper at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals happening now. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. So we have a good understanding now of what Zarossi was doing. And so did the Canadian government eventually. So when Zarossi knew he was totally screwed, he stole the rest of the bank's money and fled to Mexico. Ponzi now is left without work, but he gets a job with a company that used to bank with him, the Canadian Warehousing Company. Realizing that crime actually does pay a little bit, he goes into his new job, right? Probably like first day or some shit, first week. Goes in there, rummages through the desks to find the checkbook to write himself a check and sign the check with the owner's signature for what? $423.58. What is, who does this such a random <laughs> amount of numbers? This is, did he think, I mean, this is a fraudster move, right? It's like if you, if you do it real random and real specific, people are like, oh, it must be true. <laughs> I would like to write a check for $432.10. I would just, I would go there and be like, I'd like to write a check for 3.14579. <laughs> and 7th eighths of a sixpence, please. No, this is accurate. Uh, uh, I did the math myself. Uh, <laughs> this is awful. Tr- Tracy Morgan used to have this joke where he goes, uh, this girl asked me to borrow $1,080 for her rent. She wanted $1,080. Uh, it's like, about yeah, yeah. a specific amount, amount for her rent. It's like, you should be dating your landlord. <laughs> Well, Ponzi eventually gets confronted and confesses immediately because it's obviously he was like, "How do I don't know how you fake that?" Uh, but he's off to prison now for three years. Let me tell you something about Canadian prison in the early 1900s. You never knew who was gonna be friend or foe. That's right. You had Vern Schillinger with the Aryans. You had Kareem Saeed leading the Black Muslims. <laughs> You had Simon Adebisi leading the homeboys. 
Oh, look out. It's Miguel Alvarez and the Puerto Puerto Ricans. Jazz Hoyt leads the bikers. You seeking a little spirituality from Father Raymond Mercado? Too bad. He just got stabbed in the shower in season six. The administrators can't help you. What do you think you're going to do? Go to Warden Glenn? No, no. Warden Glenn can't help you. Why? Because they're corrupt hacks. Putting you in solitary. That's what goes down in Canadian prison. If you don't know, this isn't a TV show. This is real. In French and very real. (laughs) And not the HBO show Oz. Canadian prison institutions were pretty bad, though, in the early 1900s, I think. They were they were not not very good. No, I would Forced say the criminal labor. justice. Yeah, the cr- yeah. criminal justice system in the early 1900s was yeah. not woke. They didn't have like a uh, nice white collar prison camp like we do here. I mean, like, you know, it was hardcore penitentiaries, you know, confinement at night and a little leisure time, I think. But the. Bread and water for food. I mean, it was pretty rough. Silence at all times was really enforced. I mean, it's really weird what happened. You'd think the Canadians were more friendly, but in the 1900s, I don't think any human was friendly <laughs> at all. <laughs> no, they wore a lot of stripes. A you, lot of stripes. Even if you didn't look good in them. I yeah. mean, think about that. Yeah, exactly. Horizontal stripes, not even vertical stripes. No one looks good in horizontal stripes, really. He actually told his family, though, which I think this is my favorite part. He told his family that he got a job, quote, as a special assistant to a prison warden at the Canadian Oz prison. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it's good that at least he didn't join the Nation of Islam. But uh, (laughs) once he leaves prison, though, this man doesn't stop. It's not like he got reformed at the absurdly dark and difficult Canadian prison. He just goes to the U.S. and gets busted immediately there because he was the equivalent of a coyote in Mexico smuggling immigrants from Canada to the U.S. Well, maybe if those Canadians didn't take so many American jobs, this wouldn't be a problem. This makes no sense. After two stints in prison, Ponzi has to rebuild his character and he's got to reboot this image. To do something like that, he, you got to really do something where people can trust you again. He's a man of the people. And what better way to do that than become a nurse at a mining camp? Oh, man, that sounds pretty awful. It's just like, what are you doing, scooping black lung like on a daily basis? <laughs> well, here's something I actually found pretty interesting that, that I think is actually part of the lore of Ponzi himself. But it's it's apparently there was a fellow nurse named Pearl Gosid who was severely burned in a bad accident. Ponzi, as a selfless act of humanitarian help, let doctors remove 50 inches of his skin from his back to allow for a transfer skin graft. I believe this was in Game of Thrones. This is the grayscale that was removed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, Justin, this, but this struck me as strange. It made sense in Game of Thrones, but it struck me as strange living in, you know, reality. Sweet Christ, first, that is so much skin. And two, you can't just wear someone's skin like that and make it your own. I mean, you could have Edgeen this thing, but to have your body accept it as like actually your skin is like a whole thing. Like they're skipping like probably like 75 years of science and just trying to just like paste it on. Even today, you can't just put someone else's live skin on your body and have it work without a ton of anti-rejection medicine. And even then, you're really not supposed to do it. Most of the skin grafts that happen, they take skin from your body and put it on the, the part that's all fucked up. Well, you know, there's there there was one person that did make it work. There was a doctor named Buffalo Bill who found out that if you have a bunch of lotion in the basket, um, that's one way to get the skin graft to take. Oh, God. Well, I mean, just to clarify this, I called my brother, Dr. Amir Mahan Ghazali of the Cleveland Clinic and asked him about it. It's great, too, because we talk about our kids, and then in the middle I ask him, hey, I do need to ask you uh, a skin graft question. And he's like, oh, sure. Yeah, no problem. Here's what he had to say. Not possible. 
your body will recognize Mr. Ponzi's skin as something foreign and automatically begin to attack you. Your body recognizes something that doesn't belong to it. Similar to when you get an organ transplanted from another person. The only way that works is if you turn off the immune system. In 1900, they had no ability to turn off your immune system. Thus, not possible to transplant skin from one person to the next. The skin would just have a significant, severe inflammatory response, and it would just come right off. It would be like getting a terrible rock. Come right off. You would be back to exactly what your skin would have Now, in patients that have severe burns nowadays, sometimes what we're able to do is take, say, dead human or dead animal skin and put it on top of them. And the way why we do that is because your body reacts to that skin much slower and it prevents your body basically dehydrating because your skin is like the only thing that prevents you from shriveling up into a prune. That dead human or dead pig skin stays on for maybe like a week and then it just comes right off. But the only way to get skin to regrow is either if you use artificial skin, which is not technology they had in 1900, or use your own skin, take it from someplace else in your body and put it on top of it. That's it. Your brother is smart as hell, man. It's cool that we had a real doctor. <laughs> this is very to. nice. You're a doctor, but we have a medical doctor, so it's good to have as many. We want more DRs on this show as possible. I'm a doctor the way Dr. Funkenstein is a doctor. Like, it's, <laughs> it's not, the same, not the same thing as what your brother does. Well, the story is that it took Ponzi three months to recover from this altruistic, selfless act. But, I mean... This is not possible in 50 inches in that time period. I mean, what's strange is that I looked this up and it's in a few places. One place said it was 50 inches. One place said it was 120 square inches. This is what the lore of a fraudster can kind of do to us. Who knows where this came from? But it's now part of this man's story. Let me tell you something, though. Everyone can tell you the Ponzi story, but we're the only ones that are saying his story of redemption is bullshit. That's right. We're breaking news right here on 100-year-old-plus events, baby. So now he's got a good reputation for himself cooking, and our boy Ponzi rolls into Boston in 1917 to work as a clerk for merchandise broker J.R. Poole. He would meet his wife there, Rose Necco, and they would be married in 1918. And look, Justin, I, I found this photo of them, and they look so happy. Look at her. She's sitting on his lap. He's all jolly. He looks. They look content. They look like a, a gorgeous couple. Yeah, so the story worked on at least one person. I, I guess so. I guess so. So here, though, is where we get to our boy Ponzi's title fraud, the absolute pinnacle of his career. It starts with a letter from Spain that came with an international reply coupon, which is basically a coupon to pay for postage for an international letter. Think of a prepaid envelope with a stamp, but instead of an envelope with a stamp, you get this coupon and bring it to the post office, and they redeem it for whatever it costs to send your letter internationally, okay? The United States Post Office was always a hub for innovation. That's exactly right. So the, the value of these coupons was set internationally, which means the same across the world. So Ponzi knew that the value of the Spanish peseta, this is their pre-euro currency, had recently dropped. So here's the play. Buy the coupons in Spain for cheap. The U.S. dollar can buy more in Spain since their currency was tanking. Then he'd sell them back in the U.S. and make 10% just on the currency exchange. I think I have an aunt who does something with that with like, uh, you know, like coupons that you get in the mail. You like buy one, get one free of like Lando Lakes butter. And then I think she sells one of the butters. <laughs> well, that's a, that's pretty much exactly what happened. So arbitrage is complex, but also pretty simple. It's when you buy and sell something that's the same thing in different markets or different places to kind of profit off the differences 
in their listed price. So in currency, you're buying and selling something, the same thing, right, this coupon, and profiting off the difference in price based on the Spanish peseta and the U.S. dollar. So there's whole markets dedicated to playing the fluctuating prices of these currencies. But we've seen this before, where the fraudster starts with what seems like a simple legal business, and then it becomes a problem when they add themselves and all of their lies. Every Nigerian prince started off as a simple email marketer. (laughs) Yeah, so to make his business look legit, he created a fancy company, the Securities Exchange Company in Boston. What? And yeah, I know, I know. (laughs) The, The irony... That the company he he created <laughs> is like the Securities Exchange Commission, the body meant to protect us from fraudsters, was preempted by the most famous fraudster in history, and that record keeps getting broken. I, I hmm. yeah, it's so crazy that he came out with like the uh, a name so official. The officials had to like have something similar later they, on. Exactly. Ten years later, by FDR, they were like, you know what would be a great name to help uh, the finance? Securities Exchange Commission. Man, glad we're original thinkers in that one. (laughs) Jesus. Bonzi's SEC would start in December of 1919 and promised 100 forget 6% people, he promised 100% return on investment in his postal reply coupons in 90 days. I mean, again, Luigi... Go take your 6% and shove it up your ass. This is some Super Mario fucking fraud here, baby. 100% return in 90 days? Double your money in three months? Yes, please, baby. Come on. I like it because if you get like as an investor, right, just as a point of reference, if somebody offers you 5% return on your investment, that's like nice and realistic. If they offer you like 10%, you're like, ooh, that sounds real good. Uh, (laughs) If you offer somebody 20%, you're like, all right, I'm suspicious. This guy is like 100% returns. He couldn't. I wonder if he was like, maybe I should say 98%. Nah, fuck it, 100. 100% returns. Bonzi didn't realize, though, how awful it would be to actually do this business. I mean, maybe he didn't. He just never intended to. He never actually figured out how to get the coupons exchanged for cash. Remember, you you were just supposed to be able to redeem for postage at the post office. And these coupons would only be worth a few cents each because currency exchange rates aren't exactly a huge moneymaker when you're doing them a couple bucks at a time. The way currency markets work is like you bet millions of dollars at a time. So to get that 100% return, he would need tens of thousands of coupons. I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say boatloads. He needed boatloads of this. (laughs) (laughs) Super Mario effect. Okay, so now we have the birth of the Ponzi scheme, Justin, and why they named it after him. To get his initial investors paid, he had to pay them from the new money that was coming in, robbing from Peter to pay old Paul. So much Peter, in fact, 30,000 people invested more than $10 million in the scam. Do you know how much that is today? That is over $136 million. You, This man did a stamp scam for over $100 million. That is impressive. You could buy a lot of, with $136 million. You could, what could you? Yeah. You could buy like a, one of the most baller mansions in the United States. You could, uh, you could throw an Indian wedding on the moon. <laughs> Uh, you could launch a Tomahawk missile into Kazakhstan. Mm. You know, my last name is on a missile. Is it? Did you know that? Yeah. So Ghaznavi uh, is this old Persian king, and he actually tried to attack India many times, and he never succeeded. So, uh, you know, Persia was Egypt to India, and so Pakistan, present-day Pakistan, made a missile and wrote Ghaznavi on the side of it because they wanted to threaten India. So one day years ago, it was like 10 years ago, my brother and I are watching TV over Thanksgiving and CNN comes on and reports that Pakistan has has created a new missile 
and they show the video of the missile, and it just says Gaznavi on the side of it. And then my brother and I are freaking out. We go, Dad, what the hell is this? He goes, I have to tell you something. And I was like, whoa, my God. Why Now this is happening? So I think that's $100 million. I think it's a Ponzi level. You should lay down uh, next to one of those and then have somebody take a picture of the whole like missile going up out of your waist level, because that <laughs> photo would be priceless. That is priceless. That's my new profile pic. I'm going <laughs> to NFT that. <laughs> All right. So $136 million today. That is a huge, huge scam. And imagine just these 30,000 people. This is a stamp scam. This is just basically stamps. This is what we're talking about here. Coupons for postage. And somehow he got all these people roped in. But he does get busted, not by the police, but by the Boston Post that published a series of articles in July of 1920, which makes a lot of sense because if 30,000 people invested money in something and no one got paid, the news and the press are going to get a hold of it. So what did the article say? That this shit was absolutely impossible. And that's what brought in the auditors. They ended up finding out the amount of assets the company actually had. Remember, if you're robbing from Peter to pay Paul, you don't really have that much money. (laughs) How much money did he have left? $61 of reply coupons. Of the 30,000 people that gave him over $10 million, he had $61 left of reply coupons. Here's what you can do with $61. (laughs) Um, you can get it uh, half a tank of gas for an SUV, I guess. And, and, and you could also get hit. You could also get hit by a Tomahawk yeah, missile. <laughs> yeah, you get hit by a Tomahawk missile. You could buy a, a, a stolen revolver with one bullet in it. There you go. That's all you need. Yeah, um, that's that's what you get. You can't get the whole missile for sixty one dollars. No. Ponzi was actually arrested after that and sentenced to five years in prison, which seems like a very reasonable amount of time. But he was released only after a couple years because, again, I'm sure he got out of good behavior. But, like, this is ridiculous. (laughs) A couple of years. He just waltzes out of prison. And, of course, he's going to go back to crime. But instead of staying in New York, he snowbirds himself all the way back down to Jacksonville. And, by the way, his wife stayed with him this entire time. And they started a new life together. He went by a new name even, Charles Borelli, and immediately gets back into scamming. He started selling sham real estate investments and was able to get his hands on $7,000 in investments before the Florida cops caught up to him and sentenced him to a year of hard labor in Florida. So that's 1926 hard labor, by the way. You're not like pressing license plates. You're out doing like Cool Hand Luke type shit with a a pickaxe and like digging trenches for trains and shit like that. I like how every criminal from the Northeast goes to Florida to run a real estate scam. Like it's just, it's just like the playbook. I mean, that is a wonderfully ripe place for real estate scams. You know, I I can't help but think though, Justin, that like the roaring twenties, people are making money, cheap money, easy money. And it's a, just a breeding ground for fraud, just like Florida. Yeah, the Great Gatsby. You never know who's who, you know. Yeah. Even that, I mean, that was one of the things, you know, because back then, you know, you could like move to another town and no one would ever see you again. Exactly. So, so yeah, changing your identity is pretty easy in the 1920s. Like, I, I, I would do it. You, you know? would, you would change your identity. I mean, you wouldn't be like a criminal, but you would change your identity and stuff and start a new life. Oh yeah. I mean, my backstory. I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna change my identity for my upcoming 20th uh, high school reunion. Okay. I'm going what back as a crypto billionaire. There you go. <laughs> so Ponzi eventually posts the $1,500 bond to get out of the hard labor, and then tries to fake his own death by leaving a suicide note on a beach and flees Jacksonville for the remote and safe location of Tampa Bay. <laughs> he changed his name again, this time to Andrea Luciana, and then tries to sneak on a boat heading for Italy, posing as a dishwasher. The character work this man has done is second to none. The ability to change your uh, like character so many times to immerse yourself in a different human, I mean, that's... Pretty amazing. Although I'm going to say he's pretty limited in the ethnicity range. They're mostly Italians that this guy plays. It's kind of he's kind of like Pacino you know, in that way. Write with write what you know. Go with what you know. You know <laughs> when he he told a guy on his trip back to the motherland that that he who he really was, and that was ridiculous. And he got immediately ratted out by him, and then got arrested again. He got seven years this time, and I think the reason 
he's the best is because if you really look back at his career, pound for pound, the amount of scamming this man did was second to none. You know, Bernie Madoff had one big Ponzi scheme that went on forever. Uh, Barry Minko had one big, you know, scam for that thing. But who could really hold a candle to Charles Ponzi, who went to prison multiple times, changed his names multiple times, tried to fake his own death, did multiple different types of scams. I mean, he's the, he's the all-around And that's fraud. not even counting the scams he ran while he was in prison. He actually had a Ponzi scheme with cigarettes. He said, you give me four cigarettes, and I'll get you a carton of cigarettes by the end of the week. And he had it going in there. Yeah, and then he got out of there before he could, <laughs> the bond came in. So after the final seven-year stint that he does, he was he was done with America, and he got actually deported this time back to Italy. Strangely, though, he did get a job with the airline Alla Littoria, the national Italian-American airline, during the fascist regime. So, you know. Mussolini says, if you're going to fly, fly in class with Alla Littoria. <laughs> sure, those flights... Really were on time. But during World War II, he did move to Rio de Janeiro and lived out the rest of his years as a retired fraudster. He died in 1949 at the age of 67. Wow, Amazing. what a journey. And then even like even completing the last leg oh. of, uh, you know, going from fascist Italy to Brazil is also like another pipeline. Yeah, a safe haven, I believe, for some fascist South America. You know, not so bad. So, Justin, that was Charles Ponzi. We, you know, we could have done this episode at any time. We wanted to do it last season. Maybe we want to do it now. But Ponzi is such a central character that I'm happy we kind of got into it. Now I feel like we can move on to all these other things. So next week, we're actually going to do a check-in with some of the previous fraudsters from last season. You know, I don't know if you've heard, Anna Delvey's got that show with Jacob Wool's out there. Jim Baker was in the news. So we're going to touch on some of those people next week. Okay, that's it for today. Make sure to hit us up on our text line, 412-285-1255. Email us, fraudstersLPN at gmail.com. I'm at Cena now. Justin is at Justin Williams Comedy. Fraudsters is a production of Zero Cool Media and The Last Podcast Network. Hazel Bryan produced this episode. Ian Brannon edited. Our associate producer is Anna Laranaga. Emily Fusco is our researcher. Our legal intern is Greg Fingerhut. Our theme music is by Simon Tafik. And some music in this episode was composed by Chris Olson. And a big, big thanks to Paddle Boyle from the Italian American Podcast, our resident Italian non-historian lawyer professor expert. <laughs> See you next time. For 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. <laughs> Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Your skin refuses to be defined by age. That's why Agency creates personalized anti-aging formulas that smooth fine lines, lighten dark spots, and improve the appearance of dark circles. Each formula is tailored to you and prescribed by a licensed dermatology provider. Formulas are customized with clinically proven ingredients like tretinoin, which is up to 20 times stronger than retinol. Get your first month free at withagency.com. That's W-I-T-H-A-G-E-N-C-Y.com. $4.95 shipping and handling subject to consultation. Subscription required. Cancel anytime.